came across this cartoon by the cartoonist Harley Schwadron the other day, and it reminded me of those far side cartoons that poke fun of the people's conceptions of heaven, of the afterlife. And it was a picture of this older couple, and they had died, and they were standing on this single cloud together. And the woman says to the man, horse, what are we doing on the same cloud? Our vow said, till death do us part. <laughs> she seemed to be counting on that. <laughs> a lifetime with horse was enough, maybe, for her. And my guess is that that's true for many marriages that never really develop into true, meaningful friendships. We don't get that purpose of marriage. Anna and I have often said something of the opposite to each other uh, about our marriage. We know, yeah, our covenant is going to be over in the new age, but we still want to be friends. <laughs> we still want to hang out. Maybe not on the same cloud. The same land, earth made new. We believe in a new heaven and a new earth. We're going to dwell with our creator. Till death do us part. That comes from the, the Book of Common Prayer, uh, the Anglican Book of Common Prayer that we use in our liturgy here. And if you know this phrase, you know before that you say, as long as we both shall live. And of course that's meant to express your commitment to, your covenant with one another, how long it's supposed to last. Till death do us part, that's meant to express when it's over, when it's officially terminated. We don't dwell on that, but it's in there, in the liturgy. And that's when someone or both die. That makes the covenant over. Well, Paul, in his letter to the Roman church, which we heard this morning, in that first part of Romans chapter 7, which is what we're going to look at this morning, verses 1 to 6. If you've got your Bible, you can go there. I'm going to go pretty much verse by verse. He uses this till death do we part as an illustration of what happened with the, peoples of, with the people of God's relationship to the old covenant, to the law. What happened to that when Jesus died? That's what he's doing in this chapter. So at this time, when Paul was writing this letter, there were Jewish people, Jewish believers in Jesus, who still wanted to live under the law. And this is understandable. They have lived under the law, by the law, their whole lives for generations, hundreds, thousands of years. And uh, so not only were there these Jewish believers wanting to still stay under this, the old covenant, but they were also pressuring Christian believers to do the same, which would have meant eating a certain way, would have meant getting circumcised, among other things. Paul is never cool with this. <laughs> He's opposed to this. And he wants to make it really clear that because of the death of Jesus, the people of God are no longer under this law, the law of Moses, the covenant of Moses, the old covenant. And he uses the example of marriage to just illustrate and prove his point. It's an analogy. Be careful not to overstretch this analogy. You're going to turn your mind into a knot. <laughs> I've been doing that this week. So be careful not to do that. He starts by saying, Don't you know, brothers and sisters, for he's speaking to those who know the law, 
So that is Jewish believers who lived under this law their whole lives, or possibly Gentile believers who are coming to know the Old Testament, because at that time, this time, that was the Bible, the Old Testament. Scriptures were being written, New Testament scriptures, but they weren't part of the official canon yet. So people are getting to know this, and he says, all right, don't you know, if you're getting to know the law, or you know the law, that the law is binding on the person only as long as they live. And then he's going to go into marriage, and then we're going to look at another way how that's true, how that plays out for us in relation to the Old Covenant. So he goes into marriage, and he says, okay, there's a woman, and she's married to a husband. Well, that's a... Well, that's usually how it works. Um, but she, according to the law, she's bound to her husband as long as they both shall live, till death do them part. There are exceptions. Paul mentions those in other parts of his letters, but that's not Paul's main point here. His point is that if and when her husband dies, she is discharged from the law in this covenant. The covenant is officially over. She's free from that discharge, so now she's free to marry another man, someone else. So Paul says, in a similar way, brothers and sisters, you have died to the law through the body of Christ. So just as the, the death of someone, namely the husband in marriage in this illustration, or Jesus in redemption, both of those terminate the covenant that was already at work um, to make room for a new covenant, uh, a new marriage, either with marriage or a new covenant in, in redemption history. So that's what's similar, but this is an analogy. So there's gonna be things that are similar and there's gonna be things that are different. And this is where commentators get all kind of worked up many times. <laughs> is that so what's different here is that the woman in marriage illustration never dies. She's alive the whole time stays alive and just marries somebody else. But in redemption, Jesus dies, but in him we do too. That doesn't happen in the marriage illustration, it can't, so it only goes so far. But in the redemption story, in the death of Jesus, we die too. I've been talking about this for a little while, I'm gonna just go back into this a little more. So in the previous chapter, Paul said, those of us who are baptized into Jesus are baptized into his death. All right, so you've been listening. <laughs> so that when we're going into those waters, that's part of what that's illustrating, right? We're walking into entering the death of Jesus. So if you look at these early, some of these early baptismal fonts, they were in the shape of a cross illustrate this. And some of the buildings were actually in the shape of a tomb or a mausoleum. So you know when you were walking into these waters, you were walking into the death of Jesus, you were going to be baptized into it so that his death would now be counted as your death. This ritual would be your funeral before your funeral, so to speak. So that in Jesus, you've been baptized into Jesus, you have already died. You've already had a funeral. So if you get freaked out about your coming funeral, well, you can be assured and risk comforted. You've already had it. <laughs> it's already, already gone through it in some way. So now this sounds pretty 
morbid, right? <laughs> this doesn't sound like good news yet. And of course, we haven't come up out of the waters into resurrection reality and life. Of course, that's what, that's what comes next. But, but even before you get there, this already having been died, already have died in Jesus' reality, that's already good news for us. And that's what Paul highlights in these two chapters, six and seven, the good news of that part. So dead people are dead to all kinds of things. That's what it means to be dead. Dead, like, dead to things like sin. Sin doesn't exert any power over a dead person. A dead person has no relationship to sin anymore. It's over. They're dead to sin. That's what Paul highlights in chapter 6. We are dead to sin when we died in Christ. But we're dead to all kinds of things when we're dead. And so what Paul does in chapter 7, he highlights how we're dead to the law in that death. To the law of Moses, to what we call the Old Covenant, in contrast to the New Covenant. So he says, how, this is how through the body of Christ, he says, we have died to the law. The body of Jesus that died on the cross, through which we died to sin, that body which we were baptized into, through that body, through that death, we have also died to the law. Basically being the bottom line, the time to relate to God, the, that time, relating to God through the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the old, the old way of things. That's over. That's according to the old order of things. Through the death of Jesus, we've been released from that. So whether we're a Jewish believer, and we've lived under that our whole lives, or we're a Gentile, we're being pressured to live by the Old Testament. And some believers do this, even today. They ask you to come under that old covenant in different ways. According to Paul, you've died in that. that. That way of relating to God is over. There's a fulfillment of that we'll talk about uh, in weeks to come. But we've been released from that. Not so we can just be in no man's land. But Paul says, so that we would be free to belong to another. To marry another, in illustration. So he comes back to marriage. Under the old covenant, we had a bad marriage. Right, we were in context. We were married to the old Adam, to the old self, to sin. But in the death of Jesus, that covenant now is over. Now we're free to belong to the new Adam, to be married to Him, so to speak, to belong to Him, to the risen Christ. That's the main point. And mostly, he says, so that we could now bear fruit for God. What we were created and redeemed for. So that's what Paul says. Through the body of Jesus, you have died to the law so that, always pay attention to the so that's, you may belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So in Christ, we're not just forgiven, we're not given salvation just to be forgiven, but also so that we would be fruitful. That's the fullness of salvation. So that we would abide in the true vine and bear much fruit. Fruit that would last, Jesus says. That's resurrection fruit. Delicious, nutritious fruit to bless people 
with. This is, this is the season for fruit. This is the season for, for strawberries. You guys been eating strawberries? <laughs> They're so good right now. I love fruit. I love that. This is the season for fruit, especially strawberries. But uh, this is not just the season for fruit out there, but this is the season for fruit, for the fruit of the Holy Spirit. This is Easter time. The fruit of the resurrection should be part of our lives. So you see the law, the law of Moses, the law of the old covenant, wasn't making people fruitful in this way. It wasn't able to do that. What it actually was doing, Paul says, is that it was enticing us, arousing us, to sin more. That's what Paul says in this chapter. Now, it's not the law's fault. Paul says the law is good. The problem is with what resides in us. And what happens when that encounters the law? Something's aroused in us to sin even more. There's something in this. When we hear, don't do this, we want to do it even more. Now, in psychology, this is called reactance. And a of course, this can be stronger in some of us than in others, and sometimes this can be a real disorder. But I think we can all relate to this to some degree. So reactance is this unpleasant arousal in us, is how it's described, that leads us to adopt views and attitudes that are the exact opposite of, say, rules and regulations that are presented to us. And it actually makes us resistant to any persuasive arguments. Oh, thanks, Paul. Let's see if this works. Am I on? Thanks, Paul. So, reactants, it's this arousal in us, and when we're presented with some rules or regulations, and uh, right off the bat, we're just like, uh uh. I'm resistant to this. I'm resistant to any persuasive arguments that may support these rules or regulations. And most of all, I'm aroused to do the exact opposite of these rules and regulations. Yeah, sounds a lot like sin, if you ask me. Uh, the history of Israel is one big example of sinful reactance. They were given the law of Moses, and what do you see over their history? is this history of desiring and doing the exact opposite of, of the law. Of course, they represent us, too. This isn't just the people of Israel. They represent us, only more so, as some people have put. Little children are an example of this, right? You say, as soon as you say to the child, don't do this, you know what's coming. <laughs> They're going to want to do that very thing more than ever. So you have a new battle on your hands. Adults do this too, though. There was, in the 1960s, there was this city in Florida that for environmental reasons uh, decided to put a ban on these detergents that had phosphate in them. Because for one, they weren't actually even helping them helping clean any better. But for two, they were bad for the environment. So they decided, we're gonna put a ban on this, this, this particular city in Florida. What happened was, in the weeks leading up to the ban, sales went way up. They skyrocketed for detergent. You would think people would be buying up the detergent that had no phosphate in it. But no. They were all going for the phosphate-laden detergents. The ones they were told they shouldn't have. 
And then when the ban actually went into effect, the, the, the stores outside the city limits, the sales went up there again. And again, people weren't buying up the phosphate-free ones, they were buying up the ones full of phosphate. Because they were told they shouldn't do it. That's communal reactants. <laughs> that work. That's what rules by themselves, without some kind of grace at work in us, that's what rules by themselves can do in us. They entice us to rebel. That's what the, the law of Moses did for Israel. Many times, that's what the teaching, I think, of Jesus does to young people in Christian homes. Even more so. Because I think the law of Jesus, or the way of Jesus, is more demanding than the law of Moses. Jesus certainly simplified the law, right? He got rid of a lot of things, like the, the sacrificial system. That was a huge simplification, and simplifies it in a lot of other ways. But he also went deeper. So he says, all right, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say, if a man looks at a woman with lust, He's committing adultery in his heart. That's deeper. That's more demanding than the law of Moses. He goes further, too, than the law of Moses. He said, you heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That was the law of Moses. That was pure justice. That was so, all right, if you knock out my tooth, I can't come back to you and knock out all your teeth. That kind of thing was happening. So the law of Moses brought things to justice. Let's keep this just, whatever punishment happens. Well, Jesus goes further than pure justice. He says, all right, turn the cheek. Love your enemy. Forgive. Pray for your enemy. That goes further than just pure justice. He's taking us into mercy. That's harder and more demanding than the law of Moses. Way harder, if you really want to follow that. So much so, I believe if you give the teaching of Jesus to people, the commandments of Jesus to people, without the grace from the Holy Spirit to actually enable them to live that, you're going to crush them. You're going to produce a greater sinful reactance in them than what happened with Israel in the law of Moses. That's not how Jesus presented in the New Testament. He's full of truth and grace. But sometimes we just present the truth and it results in that rebellion in, in our young people. There's other reasons for rebellion, but that's a huge one. And that rebellion might come out explicitly, even while they're at home, or it might be hidden within, kept a secret from parents, from others, even from themselves, until they leave home. And then they leave the faith. I think that's what we're doing when we present the teaching of Jesus without the grace of the Holy Spirit. And we never do that. That was true for me uh, growing up. The, without the work, the gracious work of the Holy Spirit, the way of Jesus was way too burdensome and way too restrictive for me. I certainly didn't see it as a way to more uh, flourishing or humanness. And it produced a strong, sinful reactance in me during my teenage years. And that didn't change until the Holy Spirit came in and started doing a gracious work in me and started to show me, for one, that I had this disposition in me that heard, don't do this, 
And actually, I had heard it do this. <laughs> I knew it was there to some degree, but man, I didn't know how much it was in there until the Holy Spirit shed his light into my heart. But more than that, it didn't really change until he started sharing that new disposition of Jesus with me, replacing mine with his. That actually enabled me to start walking in the way of Jesus. I started to experience what Paul said when he wrote at the end of our section in Romans 7, but now we're discharged from the law, dead to that which held us captive. I felt that captivity with the Christian life, honestly not just with the law of Moses, but we're released from that in order that we could serve in the newness of the Holy Spirit and not in the old written code. The new covenant, the newness in this spirit, in contrast to the old covenant, gives us the grace to actually live out these commandments. That's what's so new about the new covenant the newness of the Spirit. Because our sinful disposition needs more than rules. It needs to be crucified. The sin and the evil that gave rise to what happened yesterday in Buffalo, that needs more than rules. We need to come up with the best rules we can come up with, but that kind of sin and evil needs to be crucified. That needs to be replaced with the disposition of Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus gave us in his death and resurrection. That's exactly what the Holy Spirit shares with us. So we need to pray, come Holy Spirit, share that with us, with our nation. There's a lot more to say about the law, and its transformation, its fulfillment through Jesus and the Spirit. And we're going to get more into that when we get into Romans chapter 8. But for now, no, in Jesus, you have died. You've been crucified with him. In him, you have died to sin. In him, you have died to the law. So that you could live for him, like him, in the newness of the Holy Spirit. May that be what people say about us as a community. Maybe so.